0: Welcome to the Tennis with an Accent podcast. This is your co host, Matt Zemek, along with Saqib Ali. Hey, do you think we have a few things to talk about? Rome just ended. Roland Garros is on our side, two weeks away. Let's just cut to the chase. Hi, Saqib.
1: Hey, Matt. I yeah, know anyway, it's been a while. We missed a week last week, and that's more on me uh, because I had a lot to say about Madrid because, you know, uh, I know you were tweeting quite a lot. So, but again, that's a, a kind of a late thing to acknowledge, but Rome has plenty of. Uh, ammunition and plenty of implications that, you know, uh, you have written about and you probably will be writing about in Paris. So let's unpack this uh, step by step. So a six love, six love final, you know, uh, when I saw the score this morning, uh, I tweeted immediately, you know, is Natasha's wherever formerly named as Natalia's wherever of the Soviet, of USSR? Is she trending? And then a lot of people were making the comparison. So I don't know if, if you caught uh, any of that final. Uh, how surprising is that scoreline in a major final when Pliskova has has a pretty good record at Rome?
0: Well, you know, Plishkova making three straight Rome finals, we need to recognize that as the aberrational development that it is. I mean, and, and tell me anyone, Sakib, who thought that Plishkova had a particularly strong chance of getting back to the Rome final this year. I mean, you know, Pliskova... Uh, through 2019, was a real factor on tour. We remember her very close, very high-quality 2019 Australian Open semifinal against Naomi Osaka. That match could have gone either way. It was a superb match. Uh, Plishkova, you know, from the time when she uh, made the 2016 U.S. Open Finals against Angelique Kerber through uh, the early months of 2019, she was a top-tier factor. On tour, but really since in 2020 and in 2021, we have not seen that the same player, and it's not remotely close to the same player. And so, this Rome final, as opposed to the two previous ones, it, it's just a real oddity. Uh, and you could even have made the case that a Rome final last year in the pandemic, uh, when everything was so disordered in the tennis world, was also, um, you know, hard to assign larger significance to. So to me, entering this final, uh, Sviatek uh, against uh, Pliskova, I would have been worried about Sviatek if she did not drill Pliskova. Uh, I mean, I was expecting a blowout, got one. Obviously, wasn't expecting a 12-0 bag, double bagel. But still, I mean, it's it's as great a match, matchup as Sviatek possibly could have hoped for. And I, I just think we need to draw a line of demarcation between Plishkova, two two 2016 through 2019, and Plishkova today, Pliskova is not nearly the, the force that she was in previous years. And so, you know, we're going to talk, we're going to segue into other topics, Sokip, so we might as well just segue into Sviantek. People will say, quite reasonably and fairly, that she's the favorite for Roland Garros after winning Rome, but I'm going to pump the brakes on that a little bit, just because she struggled through the middle of the, of the week in Rome, saved match points in the round of 16. We could say Rafael Nadal saved match points in the round of 16 on the road to his Rome championship. But, you know, there's a, a little bit of a difference between Nadal and Sviantec. Can we allow for that? You know, just, uh, uh, you know, 19 major titles, uh, you know, small difference. So, like, we shouldn't just automatically assume that it's going to be Sviantec and Nadal with these parallel primrose paths in Paris – uh, we need to, you know, I think, step back from the Shviontech, uh side of things and realize that, you know, she played two matches on Saturday and, you know, Ash Barty was playing excellent tennis and had to retire when leading a set and 2-1 against Coco Gauff. Um, so Sviantek getting Goff in that semifinal and then Pliskova in the final, you know, that, that's a really great <laughs> and unexpectedly great draw for her in the final two rounds. The win over Alina Svitolina is really the, the match which turned around Svantec's week in Rome. And if you do wanna say that she's ready for Paris, that's the match that I would focus on because we know that Svitolina has major tournament level talent You know, in terms of, she has the capacity to go deep at majors. She's still waiting on her first major final, but she certainly has the talent. She's been knocking on the door several times and so for shriantech to enter that quarterfinal struggling after barely getting through the round of 16 and then put down a straight set win over Spitalina okay that's that's real evidence that shriantech is ready for paris but the but a goff plishkova uh glide path to the trophy i'm not so sure we should say oh that proves that she's ready and that leads me to my ultimate conclusion about the wta Heading into Rowan Garros, it's that we're likely to have a 2021 Rowan Garros on the women's side, which is a lot like the the uh, 2020 edition socket. In 2020, five unseeded players were in the women's quarterfinals, two of them qualifiers. And I think we're going to have the same kind of bracket chaos this year. Seeds are not going to mean a whole lot. I don't think the draw is going to mean a whole lot. It's all about one player getting on a run. And the draws are probably going to open up in terms of seeds. So you're not going to see a lot of big names meeting each other in the round of 16 in the quarters. It's just all going to be about the player or players who take advantage of the path they have and uh, and, and making the most of it. That's what Tech did last year. I certainly would not expect her to coast to the title the way she did in 2020, losing only 28 games, not dropping a single set, not being taken past 6-4 in any of the 14 sets that she played, this women's tournament's gonna be wide open and someone's gonna get on a roll. And I think that's how it's gonna go. Is it gonna be tech I'm not entirely convinced though, obviously she has as good a chance as anyone to do precisely that.
1: So, yeah, we've talked about this. I think you raised a lot of interesting points and uh, my only point, not of contention, but I would see it differently when you flagged out you know how the path, you know, kind of uh, played out for her. But isn't that also the testimony on what you know the chaotic nature of WTA? You said that it, anything can happen. So maybe the same can happen again in Paris. And and you're right. Again, you can't compare her for the likes of Rafael Nadal. You know who's won, you know, so many tiles on clay. It's, it's you know like Andy Roddick said today, we don't have superlatives anymore. You know how 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 much he has normalized winning on the surface. But going mm-hmm. back to Iga. Uh, uh, while you are right that, you know, he, she got Coco and Karolina uh, uh, Prishkova, but it's also the function of how WTA is. And on that note, uh, you know, like uh, Dominic Thiem and Stefano Sitsipas are on the men's side. And if we take the two in-form clay players, Ash Barty and uh, Iga Shwiantek, who is the third player? You know, again, I know you, you think the draw uh, and the nature of the women's play, uh, the form will have a lot to say because there's one thing you can say is that, you know, you can't be certain of anything, but is, uh, is Arina Sabalenka that person where you'll
0: pay a lot of attention on what quarter she lands up with? Absolutely. You know, she has, she, you know, uh, Sabalenka and Barty really are the, the the two players who've been consistently good in the clay season. Sviantek obviously won Rome came on strong at the end, but Barty and Sabalenka met in Stuttgart. Uh, they met in the Madrid final uh, you know, they also met in Miami and they were one match away from meeting in the wrong quarters. But Coco Goff beat Sabalenka uh, to spoil that reunion. So like they 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 are the two common threads, Barty and Sabalenka. You know, Simona Halep's going to be out probably, we think, with her torn calf muscle. Um, so so Barty and, and, and Sabalenka really are focal points. And obviously, with Barty retiring against Goff, we have to see. Uh, what her recovery status is going to be, so that's another thing that the that the the health of Barty uh, and a, a few other players is going to be a, a wild card going into Paris.
1: And again, you, me, and uh, Mert talked about this in uh, during our Australian Open review, and Mert said, uh, you know, the jury should hold on its verdict on how Naomi Osaka plays on clay, not this year, but even the end of next year. So, keeping that in mind. Uh, you know, how much talk do you put on a decent Osaka run in Paris, given she gets a favorable draw? I mean, are there any impressions that you are willing to carry on forward when, whenever the draw comes out and, you know, what's the assessment here?
0: Yeah. I mean, you know, maybe the draw opens up in a way for her that the matchups are just exactly what she hopes for. So there are, there's always that puncher's chance that Osaka could have everything line up just right. But realistically, The fact that she's lost so early in the clay tournaments in Madrid and Rome, it leaves her with very, very little match play on clay. And she's come out and publicly said this, you know, she, credit to her. She's not trying to hide anything. She's not trying to pretend, Uh, you know, no pretense. She has straight up admitted. She does not know how to slide on clay, at least not the way the top clay players do. So, you know, it's clear that this is a long-term project for her. It's not something she's going to figure out right away. So I would be highly surprised, highly surprised if she gets past the round of 16. And I would expect probably a second or third round exit for her uh, in Paris.
1: Yeah, that's fair enough. That's a fair call.
0: And you're right. I mean, she's herself, you know, is uh, acknowledging what lacks
1: and, you know, where she stands in the in the process of her clay evolution. And before we do a like a, a comparison of a Mini power ranking, if there's any on the WTA. Uh, what did we learn uh, about Serena Williams this week? She came to Rome, lost a close match. Uh, uh, does that mean anything, you know, for Paris? And uh, what are the shortcomings of uh, just playing maybe one match and going into a major, which she has won before? So it's not like she's, stranger, she's a stranger to Paris for success. But
0: at this stage of her career, you know, what did this one match mean and uh, what have we learned? Well, I, you know, this is a little different from 2018 and 2009, 19. Saka. Um, you know, she went into Paris, you know, having underplayed and having, you know, been through a lot of time off in the first half, first five months of the tennis year. And, you know, it, the focus was much less on making a deep run at Roland Garros. It was much more on building a fitness base for Wimbledon. And it worked out really well for Wimbledon. Uh, made the final in both 2018 and 2019, obviously ran into an in-form Angelique Kerber and an in-form Simona Hallett, who both played great matches in each of those finals. But, you know, if you're, if you forget about being Serena Williams herself, be put yourself in the spot of just being a Serena Williams fan. If I told you that she's going to lose in the first week of Paris, as she has in 2018 and 2019, and she makes the Wimbledon final. Do you take that deal? Uh, and just speaking for myself, I certainly would. So, no Serena fan should be acutely worried about how she fares at the French Open. It's really all about Wimbledon and the U.S. Open again. And if she does well in those two tournaments, you know, it's a good year, and, and she will have once again put herself in the hunt for number 24, which really so much of the tennis world wants to see for, for, for all the various obvious reasons.
1: That's a very fair analysis. Let's take a slightly deeper diversion here because a lot of Roger Federer fans uh, I've seen the discussion are hoping for at least 10 or 12 matches between Geneva, Paris, Holly, if he can get those that kind of a number to make some sort of a rhythm going into Wimbledon does the same math or is it anything uh, that, you know, going back to you, if you're a Serena fan, what kind of numbers are you looking, what kind of matches you should have under belt if you, she were to play, I mean, at uh, she at Wimbledon. But again, unlike Roger, she has played more tennis in the last year.
0: I'd say, sir, if you're Serena and you want to build that fitness base for Wimbledon, you at least want to get to the third round in Paris. Get you know, get up, get a week of matches. Whether it's a uh, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, or Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, just get into that rhythm of playing a continuous string of matches. You know, two matches. Uh, not, might not be quite enough to, 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 you know, really uh, fine tune the machinery, get, getting a third match, I think would be good. And, and, and since, since you mentioned Federer, I'd say that's pretty similar that if he can get to the third round at the French, uh, that would be pretty good under the circumstances. And, you know, at least play a second match in Geneva, at least play two matches in Hala, you know, so like at least multiple matches, in each of these tournaments. We don't have to think about trophies. uh, It would be great if they come, but just really get get into that rhythm of playing a string of matches. That's the key in my mind for Serena and Federer. So, you know, find a way to get through those first matches of the week at each of those three tournaments. Um, You know, it's so important. We've seen Federer play a very ugly opening match at a tournament, he digs out of it, uh, and then he goes on to have a productive week that sets him up for for the future down the line. So really that's the outlook for both Serena and Fed uh, in the coming months.
1: Yeah, it'll be perfect if they both drew a grinding kind of an opponent, which who makes them hit a lot of balls and that'll, you know, and of course the W is needed. Like you said, you need multiple matches. You don't want to, you know, there's only so many positives you can take uh, from a loss, even though, you know, your big goal is Wimbledon. So coming back to. I would
0: just to jump, just to jump in, I would to add to the Federer part of this. Federer needs a good four-set, four three-hour match in the first week of Roland Garros. He needs to really kind of taste his own blood a little bit and get a real physical measuring stick for where he is. You know, if he beats a couple tomato cans, 2-2-2, two, two, and two, in the first two rounds, that's not really going to give him adequate preparation. He will need at least one long grinder uh, yeah. to give his team the information he needs to, to withstand the physical challenge that will await him at Wimbledon.
1: Absolutely. I think a David Fokina or a Federico Delbonis, some informed players who can take him to three and a half hours in one of the matches, and you're right. So let's go back to the WTA side of things and stick with it. And um, I know you've been pretty open about the chaotic nature. Some may call it depth. So, you know, if you were to come up with a typical NBA style, like power ranking, five leading women candidates for the – I mean, we're still two weeks away from Roland Garros – who who makes that short list in no particular order? I mean, who are the names? Or let me even rephrase it. Who are the names that you would be more surprised to see on the upset list? So that's their strength, reverse order.
0: Yeah, well, I think you know I don't have like a really, really strong top five heading into Roland-Garros because I'm not sure that Spiontech's, uh championship in Rome means all that much. Again, for reasons previously stated, playing Goff and Pliskova at the very end. I, you know, if, if she had made a run like Halap. Barty Sabalenka, you know, okay, <laughs> you don't need to convince me. She's number one with a bullet. Obviously, the big favorite, but that, but it didn't happen that way. You could obviously put Sviontek right at the top of the list, uh, along with Sabalenka. Barty is a health question, you know, if she's if she's in good shape, yeah, she makes the cut at the top. And then after that, not not particularly sure. I mean, you could see Garabina Muguruza come alive out of nowhere, you know, she, again, she's the female Stan Vafrinka, you know, she can lie low for a long time and then boom, she explodes at a major, certainly capable of making a run. Let's remember that she had match point against Osaka at the Australian Open earlier this year. You know, that could have been her uh, winning the Australian Open instead of Osaka. So she's kind of a lurker, but obviously she's not a 52 week a year player much as much like Osaka, you know, Barty is that, 52 week a year model of consistency Uh, so um, you wouldn't really say that uh, Muguruza is performing like one of the top five players in the world but like in terms of being a threat you would certainly put her on that list Uh, you know Svitolina uh, as mentioned earlier always lurking always has the potential but do you really trust her Um, so that so instead of Ranking these players like one to five best bets, most likely just, I would just say those are the five foremost threats, not in a particularly strong order uh, because I think the theme of this uh, women's role in Garros is going to be a lot like the last one. There really is no pecking order. It's just about getting hot, getting on a roll and much like Osaka did uh, at the Australian open, surviving that one really tough match when you're up against it, you know, then getting past it and then continuing to, roar to the title
1: yeah I think uh I don't have a list either but my list is pretty similar if I were to make one and Magaruta as someone I'd be very keen to follow her progress and where she ends up in the draw like you said she's known to play big matches at big stages and you know she can she can definitely add more flavor to this draw if she finds you know her form uh she lost a pretty straightforward match to Suvatholina in Rome uh to me that that's a potential quarterfinal, uh, depending on where they are on the draw so yeah let's uh Let's see how the draw is made and <clears throat> uh, barring injuries, you know, these are four or five names I'll be following too. So there's a big match that was played today for the 57th time. I mean, uh, staggering stats again, no matter how you put it, how you look at it. These, these rivalries are storybook stuff. <clears throat> Rafael Nadal wins 10th time in Rome. It's just ridiculous. Number six or seven were ridiculous. And now he's done it for the fourth time in a f- different tournament, fourth tournament where he's won 10, 11, 12, 13, and your solid favorite. Uh, for Roland Garros beating his biggest rival in a pretty, uh, pretty intense match. So what did you learn about this match? And, you know, I know you spoke about last year before the pandemic broke open that the ideal match would be Djokovic playing Nadal in the biggest match of history. And it happened, but Nadal, you know, Nadal got the better of Djokovic in in one of the most convincing wins he's had over his biggest rival. Uh, So let's unpack this match and what are your implications, you know, what this means in like four weeks time if then it was a rematch we well,
0: you know in late in late April and early May Sakov you and I on this podcast also on Twitter we had a lot of fun debating is Dominic team or Stefano sitzipas the bigger challenger to Rafol uh, heading into Paris and today we were reminded that for all the things that we can say about team and Tsitsipas, it's still Rafol's world you know they did make the final last October. And, and noteworthy under very different conditions than what we normally see at Roland Garros. You know, it was cold, it was damp, it was autumn, not late spring. Uh, and yet they still both made their way to the final, just as they often have. Um, and then today's match, w- which had an excellent first set, uh, some pockets of brilliance early in the third set, both men have to come away from Rome thinking, yeah, we're ready, we're ready to take on. Team and Sitsapas and the rest of the field, these are still the two best guys. These are still the two men to beat in France. You know, there, there's no ambiguity about that point. Now, of course, it doesn't guarantee that they're going to meet. You know, Djokovic had a few years in which he didn't get to the Roland Garros final. You know, he went through the injuries. Team stopped him uh, in that windstorm uh, in 2019. Um, so it's nothing's guaranteed, but they are clearly, Raffol or clearly. The, the players to beat um, Djokovic, you know, played all that tennis on Saturday and yet there he was with break point in the third, really, really close to taking control of this match. He didn't get it done, but he has to feel that after all the tennis that he's played um, that if there, there were any worries about being undercooked heading into Paris, given given that he didn't play Madrid um, you know, those worries are gone. You know, he's played the tennis, he's played his way into form He was right there with Rafa. And, you know, we have to mention on behalf of Djokovic and any Djokovic fans who listen to this podcast, we do have to say, once again, the Rome scheduling situation really screwed Djokovic, that he had to play the late semifinal on Saturday, as has often been the case in in recent years. And he he came into the final not in a position uh, to, to be his absolute best. Now, he gave it a good run, gave it a good try. Almost came through, but still, if we lived in an alternate world where Rome did not have its split session semifinals—one in the day, one at night—if it instead had the semifinals together, or if we imagine this particular year, if Rome had simply chosen to push back the semifinals to Sunday and play a Monday final, Djokovic's probably, probably has a lot more fuel in the tank, and this takes away nothing from Rafa who is a deserving champion fought off match points against Shapovalov in the round of 16 had to play that match against Shapo, you know, on very short rest. He played a late night match against Sinner on Wednesday. He was asked to play an early afternoon match rather than an evening match on Thursday. That was an unforced error by the scheduler. So Rafa was also dealt a bad hand by scheduler. So this takes nothing away from him, but yet we have seen this several times in the past 6 7 years Sakib of Djokovic playing that late Saturday semifinal in Rome and then a comparatively fresher opponent who plays earlier on Saturday had more to give in a Sunday final. We saw it against Andy Murray, we've seen it against Rafa, happened again on Sunday. So that that point needs to be taken into consideration and so, you know, Djokovic should not be worried in any way that he lost because the circumstances of this match were very particularly set up in Rafa's favor.
1: I think you unpack quite a lot there, and I, I agree with most of it. And, and I think if I'm a Novak Djokovic fan, of course, you know, uh, the golden high standards, you know, his fan club has because of his results, you would still want a title. But again, you know, he gained a lot of ground on his own form, you know, beating Tsitsipas, who, you know, was a legit contender, you know, coming in this week. Uh, because Djokovic had lost to Dan Evans and uh, uh, Aslan Karatsev, so had Sitsipas beaten him, then I think the noise that Sitsipas could be the biggest challenger would have had some momentum. Even though doing it in two weeks in Paris, where Novak has won, and he's one of the two men ever to beat Nadal, I think his credentials are kind of sealed there. You know, as long as he has some form, I think he will be, uh, you know, he'll be a big contender himself after Nadal there. But I think yeah, this week really allowed. I think, him to gain some form and, like you said, beating, you know, despite the schedule, beating Sitsipas in a physical match and then come back a few hours later to beat the local hero, Lorenzo Sonego, and then, you know, putting out this kind of an effort against Nadal. So uh, so the deal is clear. He's, you know, your second guy going into this. So let me ask you this one question, which I saw on Twitter. Uh, I didn't research this, but someone else put it out there, that how Djokovic has dominated the hard-court side of this rivalry, won, I think, 19 sets in a row or something and then Nadal uh, since 2016 hasn't lost to Djokovic in play and they're I think 11-1 in sets play so so where do you think has this become this kind of lopsided we all know Rafa is a gold standard but then let's not also forget that Novak is a man who's beaten him seven times and outside of Roland Garros he's beaten him in Rome three times he's beaten him in Monte Carlo he's beaten him in Madrid so where do you think this gap widened I mean uh, in, in this this play because I didn't realize, you know, it's this lopsided on play because I because I give Novak a lot of chance every time they play. And even in last year's Roland Garros final, I, I was picking an upset.
0: Well, you know, after Rafa went through all the health problems and the dip in confidence in form in 2015 and 2016, you know, he had an awesome 2017 season and he's pretty much been Rafa ever since. Now, some people might point out that you know oh he's kind of looked pretty wobbly in monte carlo and barcelona in recent years that that's true enough and so that the nuance is that nadal is not gonna dominate the full clay season uh the way he used to do but as you get closer to paris and as you get away from madrid with its outlier conditions you know madrid does not play the way uh of all the other clay tour stops do because of the altitude and the, and the surface there and the conditions, um, you know, in, in Rome, Rafa regularly resets the dial. He steadies the ship. And, and so as long as Rafa, you know, is shows at to some degree that he can do the tip, the things he typically does, then he's, he's in good shape for Paris. Now in terms of the Rafa rivalry, it's not that different from the Nadal Federer rivalry, you know. It's it's lopsided on clay in Rafa's favor, and it's a lot more balanced, if not in Djokovic's case, severely imbalanced in Djokovic's favor on the other surfaces. And the 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 extent to which Rafa has uh, you know fared well in those rivalries, it rests on his ability to dominate on clay. Rafa has a match record of nineteen and seven against Djokovic on clay that's pretty substantial uh it just shows how Djokovic has owned the hard court aspect uh of their rivalry that's really where um you know you know Federer's done well against Nadal but not ne- on hard courts but not nearly as well as Djokovic has Djokovic was really able to put his foot down especially in his peak years uh you know in, in such as 2015 uh to the in 2016 and that's precisely when the doll was down. Um, you know, that's when Djokovic really began to pile up the wins. But on Clay, when Nadal's been good, you know, 2015 and 2016 being the exceptions, you know, it's been Nadal's world on clay, certainly at the French Open. Uh and 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 all of this, to make the final point here, all of this means that much like the 2020 final, you know, if Djokovic had won that match he would have gained a lot of real estate in terms of the GOAT debate because no one has ever beaten Nadal in a Rowan Garros final. So if Djokovic can hunt Nadal down and, and do that, you know, it, that's that big, big, big legacy poker chip that he's looking for. Obviously, Nadal and Djokovic could be drawn on the same half this year because Nadal will be seated third, not second. You have Club Med over there at number two. But if Nadal is in the opposite half and they do meet in the final, that's the huge chance for Djokovic uh, to do something no one else has ever done and it would vault him in the history books. Need to unmute?
1: Yeah, you're right. (laughs) I was just, uh, I was 40 seconds into my response. No, I think I would just uh, beg to differ slightly here again. I'm no Murta Tunga that I can, you know, uh, put nuanced, you know, uh, technical output here but definitely from a naked eye Uh, as great as Rafa Nadal is, he's a standard on clay. But I feel when Djokovic was playing his peak tennis, which again coincided in 2015 and 16 with some of Nadal's worst tennis, uh, I still think uh, this Djokovic is slightly below that Djokovic. And that Djokovic, you know, on any court had a chance against Rafa Nadal. And I don't want to upset Nadal fans because Nadal really lost only one match to Novak at Roland Garros, which was his worst year, which... You know, some of the fans say that year shouldn't even count in 2015. But I think just to give Novak credit, I think there was a time when, you know, the patterns in this matchup even reached clay, where, you know, in 2011 and 2014, you know, there were matches that Novak was winning on on the turf, you know, which has usually been Rafa's. And now I think I was surprised to just, you know, actually pay attention to the stat that last Novak win on clay came in 2016. So it's been exactly five years. But again, Novak remains the biggest uh, I think, second biggest favorite for the draw. And this brings us to the crux of the conversation, which you and I and some others have had fun. And it was a real conversation. A lot of team fans are saying, oh, you can't undo his body of work with Sitsipas, But hey, you know, you can only count on what happened in the last three, four weeks. We all know team was a legit, you know, there was an argument to be made that he's a legit second best player on clay, but not this year. He's clearly fourth. And some people may even believe Sasha Zverev May challenge that if they were to play in a quarterfinals in Rome, Uh, in in Paris. Sorry.
0: (laughs) No, I mean Dominic team. I mean, look, we need to remember that Dominic team has been very open and candid in recent weeks in saying that you know I've lived this tunnel vision life that a tennis player necessarily. Let's 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 make this point too. It's necessary to have tunnel vision as a tennis player and as a professional athlete. It is your life. You know, it's not a criticism. Criticism of these athletes to to say that their lives are imbalanced. It is a necessary imbalance because you have to focus so much on building your craft and being fully invested in what you do. This is the hunger to be great. So it's not a criticism, but nevertheless, team has been very candid about saying that I've lived this tunnel vision life and now I want to broaden horizons. I wanna be more of a whole person. I think it's frankly beautiful. It's, It's moving, it's poignant. It's what we should all want to be as human beings, to be our fully actualized, realized selves. It's, there's a, really a spiritual element to what Dominic Team is going through. Nevertheless, that means his, his tunnel vision focus is not fully there. He, I, I think we can fairly call uh, this early part of 2021 a mild case of burnout, not a severe case, the one where you go off the grid for two or three years, but it's a mild case of burnout and Dominic team is trying to light that pilot light again and it, i just i just don't think that makes this circumstance particularly normal now some people will say uh that well you know team won the us open after not having played but that was because everybody hadn't played that was not unique to team team was in the same boat as the rest of the world in terms of playing tennis after a long layoff there was no during the seven several months he was off, you know, the whole rest of the tour was off. It wasn't this period of doubt. It wasn't this period of gloom. It wasn't this period of reconsidering his life orientation. No, that's what's happened this year. So it's really a very different mental space for team. The fact that Sitsipas could not drive the dagger through Novak Djokovic in the Rome quarterfinals, you know, that really is a central point of separation between Sitsipas and Team, Team has been able to drive the dagger through Djokovic uh, on clay in a really big moment, and so you know, understandably, people will say, "Yeah, Team is still more of a favorite to challenge Rafol in Paris than Sitsipas is." I get it, but let's just be clear what we're talking about. Then, we're, people who think that Team is more of a favorite at this year's Roland Garros. Than Sitsipas, that can only be based on reputation and history. You know what team has achieved at Roland Garros, which clearly outstrips and exceeds Sitsipas. This is not based on anything which has happened in 2021. I just want to be very clear about that point. It's okay to elevate team over Sitsipas, but you can't elevate him based on 2021. It has to be based on the past three or four years, not the past three or four months and so i i reiterate the the basic point that i've been making that if team and sitsipas enter a match on clay a big match on clay on equal terms equal fitness equal form equal everything team is clearly better at this stage of the two players evolutionary arcs but team is not the equal right now because he's been off the grid he's reconsidering his life he's in a different headspace. uh not a lot of match play, not nearly as much hunger as as we normally see from him. He's not the normal Dominic team. Now, of course, he always has that chance to play his way into form in that first week. But I will say that if team makes the Roland Garros final this year, you know, compared to the previous times he's done so, it would be a whole new level of flipping the switch, a lot like Stan Bavrinka. If team can make a really deep impressive run in Paris this year, he earns for me a whole new level of respect in terms of being able to go through a long period of relative dormancy, kind of like Serena Williams in her prime, and then show up at a major and do really well. So, I mean, he has a chance to really prove himself, but I also think he does deserve a certain level of skepticism heading into this role in Garros that does not apply to Steph.
1: No, I think you... Just, I think, covered pretty much everything. And I would like to just say uh, outside of the big three, you know, what we've seen in the last 15, 16 years, uh, to break through at a slam, you need to be not necessarily winning titles. You need to be timing the ball or playing some lights off tennis, even though you lose in a quarterfinal. And, you know, then people do take notice. And Dominic team since his comeback on clay, He, I mean, he got, what, six matches in Madrid and Rome, which is good. Losing to Sasha Zverev on the high altitude of Rome, where Zverev can really serve and use his big ground soaks, is not a bad loss in that rivalry. But overall, not able to finish off against Lorenzo Sonego is a bad loss. But then in consideration of what you just said, that was just the kind of match he needed. Now, there's one more chapter before Roland Garros' team and Tsitsipas are playing in Lyon, France next week. Again, a 250 event. But, you know, these guys uh, have the luxury with Roland Garros shifted one week late into the calendar and Dominic team probably could use more matches there. And plus, there has been a minor minor issue of blisters, which I think is a pretty common theme in tennis players. If you haven't played in a while, you can sometimes do get blisters and you see players wearing all kinds of tapes on their fingers. So that has to be kept in mind. But I'm absolutely with you on this. You know, by putting Sisipa slightly above team, does not diminish team's overall career arc on clay or his achievements. You can only make predictions based on power rankings before the draw is out on what performance the players have put out. Not what their credentials have been or body of work, and that's where I think sometimes, you know, uh, the fans get defensive, and you know nobody's putting Dominic Team's career on clay down. But hey, we are talking about twenty-one French Open. We are not talking about twenty-two or the year twenty-twenty where Dominic Team, you know, would be in future. In the past, has been so good. So I think I'm hundred percent with you. Uh, but I also don't believe. Uh, if team's blisters don't heal by then, you know, I think Matt Willis with Matt Rackett, I think, account on Twitter, who, again, is a very knowledgeable account, was saying that he noticed the team is also lacking penetration of his ground strokes. And he just didn't look like the same Dominic team. And like you said, it's natural when someone admits that they have taken time off, but pro tennis is rough. You can't just come back to it and be what you were like in January against Nick Kyrgios in that, you know, highly entertaining match uh, on High Sense Arena. So I think, yeah, Dominic team again, will be playing with less pressure. He knows, you know, he himself is not expecting to, to win the title, maybe. He wants to, but again, you know, he knows he's not in the best mindset and best uh, best frame of mind. Also, in preparation, why he's not up there. Uh, so I think he could be the silent mover. You know, he'll still be the fourth best player. So it looks like we have a lot of consensus here. So let's talk about who's the fifth guy in the mix, you know, to challenge, uh, if not for the crown, to at least make, a deep run or make a deep up one of the big upsets is it sasha zverev is it andre rublev is it someone else
0: i'm gonna go with rublev uh you know and, and the thing with the thing with zverev's madrid title besides just the fact that madrid is you know he does well at madrid and he doesn't do all that well anywhere else on on red clay but the madrid aside you know there were there were some particularities to the, the Madrid run. I mean he beat Nadal team and Verratini. That's that's pretty impressive. But you know Nadal had had an off day. Um I mean it, like it, it's not as though Zverev beat an informed version of Nadal. Nadal was scuffling, uh, really didn't handle that match very well. And then team had the blisters in the semis on Saturday. Team could not push through the ball. He could not hit through the court. He was slicing for much much of the second set so it's hard to put too much uh, positive value or significance to to that particular win, even though it's team. It wasn't the team that we that we really know, uh, you know, can play can play at his best. It was not anything like that uh, elite version of team. So I didn't come out of Madrid thinking that Zverev's run, while looking good on paper, I think the reality was not as good uh, as what uh, it, it indicated on paper. Um, so th- th- we have to start there. And then the other really big point about Zverev Sakib is that when he had the break leads in the third and fourth sets against Djokovic in Melbourne, and he couldn't close that match down against a version of Djokovic who was still in noticeable physical discomfort uh, you know, from all the injury problems that he was going through in Australia before his body began to cooperate in the semis against Karatsev and then in the final against Medvedev, not being able to finish a weakened Djokovic, that is the kind of match which leaves some scars. It really creates some scar tissue. And so in Madrid, did we really see uh evidence of a transformation in Alexander Zverev's playing style, such that you know, when we when he goes to Paris, when he goes to Wimbledon, is he gonna start playing the aggressive tennis we know he needs to play if he's going to cross the threshold? I don't think so. The fact that he did not beat an in-form version of team uh, in in the Madrid semifinals, you know, that prevents us from really saying, "Wow, this is a new Zverev," or "This is a changed Zverev." We need to see a trans transformed version of Alexander Zverev, especially with Nadal and Djokovic back in the picture, which they were not at the U.S. Open when he made the final. We need to see a transformation in Alexander Zverev if we're really going to give him that top tier uh level of 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 status as a as a main threat to Rafael. Uh I don't I don't see evidence for it. So just on that basis alone, I would put Rublev there by default. It's really more of an anti Zverev verdict than a pro Rublev verdict.
1: Yeah, fair enough. And again, um uh, uh... What I'm about to say, you know, may not sit well, uh, not with you, but others, because Sasha where you know, his off-court uh, activities have uh, really diminished, you know, his talk, and rightfully so, and we are not here talking about that, just speaking about his tennis. Yeah, off-court off-court yeah. problems. Yeah, of course, problems and you know what what should have happened, that's a different conversation. And you know I, you know, even though we don't make noise on that front, we 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 kind of are on the same same wavelength. But strictly taking about talking about his tennis, I would uh, disagree with you on slight terms. What you just said about Novak Djokovic in that match is really, you know, worth mentioning. But then my counter argument is if there's car tissue, you know, to still beat Nadal on clay in Madrid, even though Nadal's having an off day. Granted, he had a week off between Barcelona and Madrid you know, what happens is Verev loses to Nadal, our team, right? He still held his own end of the bargain because you only worry about your end of the court. Whoever is there, you play them. The draw did not really open up, but you're right. There was a deteriorated version of Dominic team who's trying to find, you know, his game. And then it wasn't really the best version of Nadal. But let's not forget, in the first set, Nadal was up 4-2. And Rafa Nadal has made a career on clay, even Madrid included when he's playing his B or C levels, he still finds ways to get things done. So I think you are being slightly harsh, but again, you have very consistent standards, mm-hmm. how you evaluate players. So I, res- I respect that. But as your you know, podcasting partner here, and you know, I-, I-, I think Zverev, to me, that win is a win because Madrid has always been played on high altitude when Federer won, when Djokovic won, when Murray won. Nadal's won it four times himself. So I'm not going to short that title that much Because Zverev, let's face it, is a choker, right, so far. He has all the game, like Andrew Burton says, but he is a six-foot-six-inch grinder. So when he backs 140 serves with defensive plays, he's going to get into trouble. And you're right, he has to solve that uh, problem in Paris. If he, again, has to face Djokovic or Nadal and finds one of them on the ropes, then those cars and those topics will be very relevant. But I think Madrid still has a meaning for Madrid. He still wins a Master 1000. You know, doesn't drop a set, I think, that week, if I'm not mistaken. Absolutely destroys Kay Nishikori, who's also trying to find form. And then backs up with a solid Nishikori win in Rome, which is the slowest of clay cycle, uh, the uh, five-week clay cycle. And then plays a high-quality second set against Rafa Nadal, where Nadal shows his class and the gap is huge. He shows, OK, Sasha, you're not there yet. But he, in six of the four games that Nadal won, he was down break points or game points. And that was a difference between a man and a boy, but I still give Zverev credit to get there because my theory is you only choke when you reach a certain point and to reach a certain point, you are good. You know, uh, People who are not good don't choke, right? I know it's a weird analogy, but to even get to the yeah. point when someone accuses you to choke, you got to have something in the arsenal, be it basketball, cricket, tennis, yeah. that you're leading the best players and at least have them on the ropes. So on that point of view, I think, and 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 Rublev is another guy, you know, who we don't talk about. I was asking Mert. We made a big deal of Zverev for all these years for not reaching quarters. Rublev has been manhandled in all four of his quarters. If you discount the 2017 <clears throat> loss to Nadal in New York when he was a really young guy, he's only won one set in his last three quarterfinal appearances against Medvedev, Sitsipas, and I think Zverev. So I think in 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 the in the big boy race, On the tour, he's made real solid ground by winning so many titles, but I think between him and Zverev, I think it's a 50-50 call who your fifth man is. I mean, uh, maybe it's not a satisfactory view, but I see, you know, I think we can be little kind to Zverev in giving him, you know, the the accolade he deserves for beating a B version of Nadal and an injured team because what happens if you lose those matches?
0: (laughs) Absolutely. Completely agree. And I think on your point about choking is well taken that – you don't really choke unless you have a great opportunity in front of you. And if you have a great opportunity in front of you, you have obviously achieved enough to have that opportunity become attainable. Completely agree with that.
1: All right. So before we wrap this conversation up, are there any other players? I, mean, I want to talk about Shapovalov. Is there anyone else you want to talk about before we draw a conclusion to this episode of the podcast?
0: Well, uh, Lorenzo Sinego. I mean, I think uh, going into Paris, we really need to see... Uh, you know, was he just riding the wave in his home country for a week or is his Sané goat uh, about to uh, rise even more uh, in France that so that's a that's a fundamental test, you know, a, a home nation player look at Paula Badosa uh, in Madrid had the great week. Okay, you rode the wave of momentum and exhilaration in your home country. Alright, life on tour, though. What are you gonna do when you pack your bags and leave your home country the next week? You know, that 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 is just a fundamental test. So it's gonna be very fascinating to see what Senego has for us in Paris.
1: Absolutely. Actually, Eli. How about his countryman Beratini? Where would you put him in any sort of pecking order? How impressed were you with that run with his big forehand and big
0: serve on the high bouncing coats of Madrid? Well, you know, he, he he had a he had kind of the good draw that uh Pishkova had in Rome, you know, being able to play Casper rude and obviously no offense to Casper rude, but like you would rather play Casper rude than Dominic team in the, uh, in the, uh, semifinals of Madrid or any, uh, 1,000 point tournament. So we had the comparatively better path and, 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 made the most of it, but, you know, Berrettini is a legitimately big hitter Madrid rewards big hitters. So, um, you know, I, I wouldn't say place too much stock in Berrettini uh, going into Paris, where heat now, where, where things could get interesting, is at Wimbledon. I'm going to be interested to see uh, what Berrettini does at Wimbledon. You remember that Federer took him to school a couple years ago. It was a real educational moment. We obviously didn't have Wimbledon last year, but uh, uh, Berrettini, the prospect of Berrettini on grass, uh, excites me because uh, I think his big game can can do something on that surface. But at the French Open, not especially.
1: Yeah, I think on, on that note, Denis Shapovalov is another guy who we least expected. I even tweeted about it that unlike Medvedev or Horkac, he seems somewhat comfortable uh, on clay. He can move all right, but you, he's not your guy who's going to be, you know, you're going to pencil down, okay, round of 16 for sure, because a lot of players who can take him out on clay. That being said, I think he showed an amazing week here. Of course, he lost, you know, third round, but he, in that three-hour effort, played super offensive tennis And again, people will argue that was not the best of Nadal. Look, that is a criteria. For anyone to have a chance, that has to happen. Nobody's saying that he would be the lights out, you know, at 100% best Nadal on clay. That's never going to happen, even when Nadal's probably 39. You know, that's a reality. But you only control what happens on your side of the court, Matt. So I was very impressed. And, uh, you know, of course, he played two match points quite tight. One, he shanked. And who knows what kind of a conversation we would be having as Shapovalov converted that match point. You know, uh, against Rafa, so I think he should be given credit. Even though Felix Ogialia seems moves better on clay, his countryman and good friend seems like a better clay contender in the long run. But I think Chapo played a very impressive, you know, high offensive tennis. Uh, you know, his style is about attack, and he was coming early. You know, making those big returns and trying to finish points to the net. So I think that was a very impressive effort. And I, I don't care what people say that you know. Some Someone wrote on my Twitter line, oh, this was expected. I don't know if it was expected when you play a three-hour match and you have match points. That's why you lace up. Yeah, it was expected for him to lose. But once the cat's out of the bag, I mean, anything can happen. And Rafa would be the first one to admit, you know, you don't take anything for granted when the guy's facing match points. You know, he, he's he's earned those match points.
0: Yeah, I don't think, I didn't hear anyone saying that it was expected, that no, no, it Chapo was expected, would have so, match points against Nadal no, no, and play him in a match over three hours on clay and roll no, 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 who, who was expecting that
1: no no, no let me let me <laughs> correct the record I tweeted about Shapo <laughs> Wallow's performance and someone said it was expected he would still yeah. lose so this is in response uh, well, to that yeah okay. yeah okay yeah. no no, okay. no yeah let's set yeah. the record here no, yeah yeah it wasn't right. expected
0: at all <laughs> <laughs> yeah but um the th- you know the thing with Shapovalov and I'm th- I, this is not my analysis you know I like I'm not saying anything original here but sometimes you know in 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 sports commentary you've been in this industry long enough as well as I have to know that you wind up saying the same things over and over again that might be dull it might not be sexy it might not be satisfying but if you you sometimes you just have to say the obvious thing that everyone else is thinking because it's the truth you know you don't you don't invent something new. If it's not the truth, and so the, the 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 very familiar, very obvious, but very necessary point to reiterate with Dennis Shapovalov is that if he plays with more margin, that I mean that is the number one, two, three, four, five, eighteen, four hundred eighty-seven, five thousand ninety-six. If he plays with more margin, and he realizes that his electric shots and his his weight of shot. Uh, can do plenty of damage without having to aim for lines or corners. If he can play with more margin, he can still be a very offensive player. He can still, you know, thrive in matches. He can still wear down, grind down his opponents. He doesn't have to play low margin tennis as frequently as he does. If he can learn to master that one thing, that one essential part, of the tennis arts he could have a great career but you know we've seen players joe wilfred sanga really comes to mind here sakib they 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 like the showy shot instead of the sound high percentage shot and sanga was so in love with french flair and savoir faire uh that he wasn't able to just get into that grinders mentality hey just play percentage tennis I have the goods. I have the talent. I have the athleticism. Let me just play solid high margin tennis. That doesn't mean I'm passive. I can still be offensive, but I can play with margin. I don't need to live on the high wire all the time. If Chapo gets that one truth right, if he can get that point down and and implement it consistently, he can really go places. He can be an elite player. He certainly has the shots. It's about reining in the the showtime aspect and, and being able to just put the pieces together. I mean, you know, remember Federer, Roger Federer, also Ash Barty. They both have acknowledged that early in their careers, they knew they had all the shots. They didn't know when to play them. They didn't know how to sequence and construct points, but the, like the tools, the talent was always there. It was just learning how to play and Chapavov still has to learn how to play not an original observation, but the one which has to be made.
1: Yeah, I think on on that note, I think we definitely agree, and you're right. You know, sport has its own evolution. Shapovalov, again, shows glimpses every now and then, and let's see, you know, if we can complete the full picture and we don't have to wait for too long. Uh, So on that note, there's Sakeb and Matt signing off, but don't tune out after the end of our conversation. There's a very special conversation Small one with uh, that I was uh, able to get with Maren Chilich. So I've added that audio file for the pleasure of your listening. And then we'll be back with another show in a week's time. So yeah, stay tuned for Chilich and it's bye from both of us. Hi, Maren. A couple of questions. Uh, As we all live through this pandemic, this is uh, every day there's a new conversation how we handle this. And a lot of athletes are living through the bubble and uh, the struggles of mental health, uh, loneliness and, you know, the international travel, that tennis involves compared to other sports. So how have you coped with this and has that changed your approach towards the sport?
2: Um, yeah, in general, uh, it's not easy. You know, this uh, being in the bubble, uh, definitely not easy, especially if you don't play well. Uh, if you play well, you don't mind, you don't care. It you go from the tournament to tournament, everything is great. But uh, if you don't do well, you, you cannot go outside. You cannot uh, change a little bit the atmosphere. Uh, if you play two, three weeks in a row, it's, you know, every day is the same. Uh, luckily here now in Monte Carlo and, and here we can go outside for one hour, which is good. Uh, but still... It's also not the best. Uh, you would like to, you know, go to the restaurant, go to the cinema, do something normal, just be out of, out of this every day, the same thing. It, it feels like endless day. Uh, and um, for me, I just, uh, in that now and last period, I just try to focus a little bit more on, on doing something positive every day for myself, do a little bit small goal. Uh, to read something Uh, for example here i was going to run every morning uh, just to do something in the day for myself because i was feeling every day is passing uh, nothing is happening new you know i have no idea when is this gonna stop and and how to break this cycle so in the end for me i feel it's it's important to have something that you feel good about and that you do something in a day for yourself which which can help you just to motivate you to go uh, to another day.
1: Sure. And uh, I'm sure you've heard this question in the past, but I just wanted to get it out there. You were a top player, everybody knows, not too long ago and you tried to rebuild your ranking. Is there a moment in the past, uh, like the Pella match at Wimbledon, you think that kind of a match has impact on players? Because a lot of times that match was brought up in 2018 when you lost that match at Wimbledon. So is that something players hold on to a tough um, loss like that.
2: Sorry, which match in, in in Wimbledon 2018?
1: Yeah, the loss to Pella. Is that something yeah. that stays with players? Even at uh, your yeah. level, someone's a champion, you know, or is it easy to shake it off?
2: Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, for me, that was one of the most difficult uh, losses I had uh, throughout the Grand Slam career. Just, you know, circumstances like this, uh, two sets to love up, uh, rain started to rain delay. Uh, we stopped, then we continued, then we stopped, then, you know, we continued on the wet grass. I lost my serve, then we come back next day. I lose the match. So it's, it was extremely dip- difficult because I was in unbelievable form at that moment. I would say in that patch of, of three months or actually six months, I was playing maybe the best tennis of my life and coming into Wimbledon, winning Queen's. Uh, definitely a big, uh, big disappointment, but you know, it, it happens. Those, those things happen and, and I just hope that I will have another chance uh, to do well at Wimbledon.
1: Uh, so my question is overall, uh, tennis has gotten more uh, older in the last 20 years or so because if you look at the past champions like Becker and Sampras, they didn't play past their 31st birthday and now your biggest rivals like the big three are all in their mid to late 30s and you yourself are 32 years young. So what does the future planning hold for Marin Cilic? What are the short-term and long-term goals uh, keeping in you know, today's tennis in mind? Um,
2: I, still, I, ha- I still feel I have three, four, five good years uh, in tennis and uh, you know, with my physical abilities, I feel good. Uh, last couple of years have been really, really good in terms of my health. And I feel there, uh, if everything goes well, you know, why not? I can play on this good level. Uh, for 3, 4, 5 years and, and uh, you know, I, I feel definitely this has moved a lot uh, you know, just recovery I think players are taking a little bit more care about recovery nutrition, you know, physio, physios as well, uh, everybody's traveling with a physio so that helps a lot and extends the career and uh, it gives me an opportunity to try to reach again, my top level uh, I feel that I have uh, also enough time but not too much so I want to use every day the best I can uh, so in short term uh, goals uh, is, is to get as many matches as I can to be in this uh, kind of a mindset that I am at the moment to be very positive to you know, push myself as much as I can and the, in the long term looking how I can improve my game what I need to do still to be better and how to reach this uh, top potential uh, it's not looking at the results that I win grand slams or if this happens great but if it doesn't it's also fine I just try to you know improve as much as I can with my game
1: and just an extension to this is scheduling going to be part of the long-term planning which tournaments to play and how you plan your calendar
2: um yes I think since even even since I started my career uh, Bob Brett has been a huge influence for me in that part. Uh, I rarely, rarely played more than three weeks in a row. Uh, and that's why also next week I'm, I pulled out of Madrid uh, and I'm playing Rome and Geneva uh, so that I don't play four weeks in a row, just uh, saving my body. And basically I, f- I felt also during my career in few occasions I played more than three and always you know starts to hurt somewhere or the just physical abilities drop drop down that's how i feel so it's definitely going to be part of the scheduling but also training hard Um, i'm doing really well in the training and that's that's keeping me healthy and and keeping my fitness on a good level so that's i think one of the most important parts
1: thank you kindly and good luck for the rest of the thank you